0: Hello, and welcome to the latest CER podcast. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Foreign Policy Director, and with me is Catherine Pye, the CER's Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow for 2020 to 2021, who's just wrapped up what I think is a very successful six months with us by publishing an excellent policy brief entitled The Sahel, Europe's Forever War. And I'm going to discuss the report with her and with our special guest, Abdul Salam Bello, who's the alternate executive director for the Sahel countries at the World Bank and a non resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. So, uh, welcome to both of you. It's been a long time since the CER looked at this part of Africa, perhaps too long. Um, but despite the fact that Europe has devoted considerable human and financial resources to the region, the situation there seems, if anything, to be getting worse. So Catherine, perhaps I could start by asking you, what's going on in the Sahel and and why does it concern Europe? Why does Europe feel that it has to get involved at all?
2: Sure, thanks Ian. Well the Sahel, which is a region below the Sahara Desert, which stretches across West Africa, is now entering its ninth year of conflict While the violence initially began in 2012 with an uprising from the Tuareg tribe and jihadists in Northern Mali, the conflict has changed in character and now takes place between different communities along ethnic lines. We've seen a massive increase in inter-ethnic violence in the past five years, which has spread from central Mali southwards to Burkina Faso and Niger. Jihadist groups are now taking advantage of the inter-ethnic tensions to recruit new members, especially from the Fulani or the Pearl community. 2020 was unfortunately the conflict's most deadly year yet in terms of civilian casualties, and 2021 is on track to surpass that. So this conflict is one of Europe's strategic priorities for several reasons. First, because of its geographical location and relevance in terms of migration. Many refugees and migrants originate from countries such as Mali, or they transit through the region, particularly through Niger, which borders Libya, and has been a key route to get up to the Mediterranean and cross into Europe. Second, there are jihadist groups very active in the region, such as JNIM, which is linked to Al-Qaeda, and also a group called the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara. This is the main reason why France is particularly engaged because they worry that these groups could target French-owned uranium mines in Niger, for instance, which are crucial to France's nuclear power program, or they worry that jihadist groups could sponsor domestic terrorism. But there is a third and more fundamental reason that the Sahel conflict is a priority for Europe, Europe has invested a huge amount of energy, resources, and political capital in the region, like you said, Ian. It's present in a way that cannot be said of other conflicts in its neighbourhoods, like Libya and Syria, where European countries and the EU especially has stood on the sidelines compared to powers like Russia and Turkey. So the Sahel has become kind of a litmus test for Europe's credibility as a crisis manager and its capacity to deal with conflicts and instability in its own backyard.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Abdul Salam, I, I mean, in her report, um, Catherine referred to the problems of governance as being at the heart of the crisis in the Sahel. Do you agree? And, and if so, can you explain how these these problems of governance cause and prolong the various conflicts that are going on in the region?
1: Yes, no, thank you very much. I think it's an important uh, topic and uh, congratulations to Catherine for her very good report. Um, uh, Fully agree the importance of uh, governance, uh, rule of law and uh, accountability. I think uh, those issues uh, have shown also the weakness of uh, the institutions in uh, underground, And uh, those also weaknesses led or are leading to people feeling uh, disenfranchised. Uh, recently in Burkina Faso, the government appointed a minister in charge of uh, national reconciliation. And uh, recently I had the opportunity to say, to listen to him sharing his analysis of uh, the conflict in his country. And I think his assessment may applies also to various degrees to the rest of the Sahel uh, countries. What he has been saying is um, among the de- degree or categories of uh, issues related to governance, I would say that need to be taken care of. First, you have issues that are on political nature that uh, have been linked to how systems, groups, uh, access to power and how the power political power is, uh, is managed. For instance, Burkina Faso, you see up to now, the, the death of the former president, Thomas Sankara, has not been uh, clarified or settled uh, while he, he died in 1987, so almost uh, 34 years ago, or people like uh, Norbert Zongo, who was a prominent journalist who was making cases on the regime of uh, Blaise power. So those cases have not been uh, resolved and those are kind of symbols that show the weakness or the inability of the state to address uh, most, I would say, symbolic event uh, issues. You have another category that uh, are linked off to uh, the various communities, and Catherine alluded to that. Uh, Those are in general less visible, but uh, they have a tremendous impact. And if you look, you you dig a little bit, and uh, Catherine mentioned it also in her report, is uh, the issue of land, access to land, concurrence of norms and uh, the issue between uh, farmers and pastoralists. This leads to a lot of conflicts. In Burkina Faso, it was about 1,600 conflicts that have been linked to uh, issues related to land management or norms, or even how you access to uh, natural resources. There is another category. Uh, This is definitely linked to to the terrorism. And uh, those also has some uh, social lines coming even from, from the past, and you can link that also to uh, what I've been saying earlier regarding uh, the issue of, uh, of land. Uh, the fourth category is uh, related to the conflict between the state as an institution and the citizen. You see a lot of uh, issue regarding, for instance, careers broken, uh, denial of benefits, unfair dismissal, or unresolved judicial settlement from the state—that leads also to uh, to frustration. And the issue of uh, judicial settlement, you have seen that actually, that you have seen the reverse side in in Mali when the jihadists took over some part of the countries, and they came with uh, uh, the Sharia law, where you see even some citizens being satisfied with this approach, because they were considering that this the approach the Sharia law was more Fair than uh, the secular judicial system that have been applied before. So, but of course, uh, it was just for a short time of short period of time. The last point in terms of governance, I will say, is uh, well, if you take those categories I have outlined, those lead to an important issue, which is also uh, the perception, uh, how the state as an institution is perceived in terms of its ability or inability or weakness uh, to address uh, global governance, especially when it comes to management, management of people, access or equal access to services, and also the administration of justice.
0: Thank you. I mean, one of the things that I found very striking in what you just said was the number of conflicts that center on land and use of resources. Um, and Catherine alludes to the impact of climate change on, on the region. Uh, I mean, as, as someone with, with roots in that area and, and now with a specific responsibility at the World Bank for that area, can, can you give me some idea of um, whether climate change is, uh, is making those conflicts worse or you know, is it is it playing some role in the the dynamics of these conflicts over resources in the region?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, climate change has a has an important effect. We know that there are some debates among scholars. Uh, what are the links, or direct or indirectly conflict and uh, and climate? But uh, as far as Sahel is concerned, I would say that we see directly those uh, those links uh, because of. Um, the geographical position of, uh, of the Sahel is a region that is affected by uh, a lot of period of, uh, of drought, for instance, or even uh, which uh, lead also to issue on access to natural resources, especially water or uh, pastoral lands, for instance. And if you compound this with an uh, increase of, uh, of the demographic growth in, uh, in the region, definitely you have an increased pressure on access to natural resources, and therefore increase uh, issue on not only tension, but uh, differently different type of conflicts. And actually, if you take the climate change and uh, the violent outcomes, actually, between the, these two, you have what we call the mediating factors. And Taking the climate impact currently in the Sahel, what are the the warming, increase in in, in temperature. You have floods. If you look at what happened over the last years, most of the countries in Sahel have been affected by important flood, droughts. And those floods also lead to uh, acceleration of land degradation because of the erosion. So you take those climate impact effects, what do they lead to? They lead to food insecurity. Uh, Currently, there is an assessment that is being made by the Sahel uh, OECD uh, Center, uh, where they made an assessment that by end of last year, there was about uh, 16 million people who were affected by uh, risk of food insecurity, 16 million in the region. Uh, While this will increase most likely by 50% to reach 23, 24 billion by end of this year. So... You see, the, you see the food security or insecurity issue. Then you add the water insecurity because of the variation of climate. Then you add, because of the conflict, displacement. Refugees in Burkina Faso, you have up to 2 million now, if my memory is correct, about people who have been either refugees or internally displaced in the country, which is an important figure. Then I mentioned, of course, the competition of, uh, for land and access, loss of livelihoods, and the governance, which links to the first question you you have asked. Those are the mediating factors. And most of them, I will say, uh, the the flags are red, actually. Then of course, they will lead to what? To protest, insurgency, crime, armed conflict, uh, among among others. And we see that uh, currently uh, happening more and more with the increase of the insurgency in, uh, in the Sahel with a terrorism attack in, uh, in the, on the border between Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali on one hand. But if you take the other side of, of Sahel, I will say the border between uh, Niger still, uh, Lake Chad, and Nigeria with Boko Haram, and this region is what is where you have also the, leg, the Lake Chad. Where also uh, the climate effect is uh, is also a very uh, very visible. Over the forty years, the lake Chad lost ninety percent of its size. So you see the you see the impact.
0: Yeah, th- those are really quite um, startling figures, particularly for the number of people who already suffer from food insecurity and the number who are going to be affected by that uh, even during the course of this year. So, uh, uh, Catherine, if I can turn back to you. Um I mean, how does how does Europe's effort measure up by comparison? Just how how engaged in the region is Europe and, and in what ways?
2: Yeah, so European involvement, um, I guess I'll I'll start globally sort of by outlining how Europe is engaged in the region, and then I'll get into a little bit more about how successful that's been. So France is by far the most important single player in the region. As the former colonial power, France has intervened in the region in the past, and President Hollande got France involved in this conflict in 2013, originally to push back jihadist groups after the 2012 uprising in Northern Mali. But this military engagement didn't end then, it was replaced in 2014 by a longer-term counter-terrorism mission, Operation Barkhane, where over 5,000 French soldiers are still deployed today across the Sahel. France has really been the driving force behind the European Union's engagement with the region as well. The EU has missions within the framework of the common security and defense policy, a program to train the military in Mali, and then two civilian missions in Mali and Niger to build capacity in the law enforcement sector. So the EU has quite a wide range of development funds operating in the region as well to sort of build up public services for citizens and re-establish the state's authority in regions that were previously controlled by jihadists, for instance. Uh, The EU's also stepped up its engagement diplomatically through a special representative they appointed, Angela Osada, who supports the peace process in the region and also helps implement these five-year regional action plans the EU has. And the EU's currently revising its Sahel strategy, which will be finalised in this month's Foreign Affairs Council. And other than that, um, other European countries that France is urging have become much more involved The UK sent 300 troops to the UN's peacekeeping mission in Mali, MINUSMA, at the end of last year and has been stepping up its diplomatic presence in the region. The importance of supporting Operation Barkhane was actually mentioned in the UK's integrated review this year. Uh, Germany has also stepped up its commitments mostly to the UN's peacekeeping mission and together with the UK and other EU member states, Germany is a member of the Sahel Sahel Alliance, which is an organisation that coordinates the activities of European donors in the region and their development goals. But actually countries like Estonia and the Czech Republic are even playing increasing roles in this region too. They're giving direct support to Operation Bakan through a new French-led counter-terrorism task force. This is a clear signal to France that they're willing to devote energy and resources to France's priorities in the Sahel and expect this to be returned by stronger French commitments to defending Eastern Europe from the threat of Russia. So you've really seen this Europeanization of, of operations in, in the Sahel. In, in terms of the question of how successfully has uh, Europe's involvement been in responding to the challenges that Abdul Salam outlined very well, European involvement has been successful in responding to kind of some very specific technical challenges. So France is playing a very important role in counterterrorism. They're training the armed forces of countries in the Sahel to fight jihadist groups and cooperate with each other in cross-border areas where violence is at its worst. Operation Bakan has had some significant tactical victories against the jihadists, including killing high-profile leaders, for example. At the same time, European development funding is helping governments in the Sahel to build roads and hospitals and administrative centres to help develop areas which have been devastated by conflict. These are important projects which are vital to post-conflict reconstruction and helping to fight the effects of desertification and climate change, which Abdul Salam also mentioned. But Europe's response is very focused on technical questions of capacity building in a certain sector or training an army. Europe's response doesn't really properly address the long term causes of why the violence is happening in the first place or how to help break the cycle. The real problem is that Europe is also supporting governments that are perpetuating the conflict, and ultimately, this is counterproductive to their aims of stabilising the region. So what do I mean by this? Well, armed forces in Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger have been responsible for human rights violations and illegal killings of civilians, especially from the Fulani community, and there's not really been much accountability for these crimes. This sense of insecurity and injustice that citizens feel when these killings happen is actually a really powerful recruitment tool used by jihadists who say, you know, join us, we'll protect you, which is especially appealing to the communities such as the Finale who feel like they're being attacked. And These state-sponsored killings have become more and more frequent and in fact in 2020 more civilians were killed by national security forces than by jihadists in Mali and Burkina Faso. But the EU and European governments have largely been silent on those abuses and they have continued to fund the armed forces in the Sahel without really publicly demanding that these killings stop. So on a similar note, the problem of corruption and poor governance is also a key driver of instability, but Europe hasn't really engaged sufficiently on these questions either. Mali had mass protests against corruption last year, which led to a coup and the overthrow of the government. And Niger also had civil unrest following a large military contract scandal in which at least $137 million in public funds was found to be misspent. Europe hasn't really seen these protests as an opportunity to put pressure on governments to address popular grievances, but they've seen them as a nuisance or they've largely ignored them or called for order. And Europe and France are understandably worried about being accused of neocolonialism by commenting on the domestic affairs of countries in the Sahel. But the real problem is that without any engagement in the politics of the region, underlying frustrations with corruption and the marginalization that many communities still feel will continue to fuel instability as Europe continues to fund the same political establishments in these countries without many questions asked. So. Europeans are quite good at talking about the need to address the root causes of conflict and mentioning the importance of governance in their regional strategies, mentioning climate change as well. But it's a question of putting those commitments into practice and making these issues a priority, moving beyond their current emphasis on more technical questions of capacity building. Mm.
0: I mean, I I just wonder uh, how does Europe's involvement and its approach to some of these issues fit into the broader picture of international involvement in this part of Africa? I mean, for example, I know that China is contributing more troops to UN peacekeeping operations, and it's involved in some infrastructure projects. First of all, you know, I, I don't know whether you have a view on how um, significant those those uh, projects are, but but also I wonder, you know, in some parts of the world, Europe um, holds back from too much criticism of the the local authorities because it fears that you know it may be displaced by china which tends not to criticize um other countries for their repressive policies i mean is that a factor here or or is this much more focused on europe's own goals to do with migration and counter-terrorism
2: yeah, so in terms of your point about sort of China and, and other geopolitical actors, the Sahel is definitely becoming of interest to, to these to other countries, um, given its location and concerns that violence could perhaps spread further southwards, uh, for example, into the Gulf of Guinea. I mean, the US plays an important role in supporting Bakan especially with sort of intelligence and air-to-air refueling capabilities. It has a drone air base in Niger with around 800 troops currently in the country. And there was talk of withdrawing under Trump, but this doesn't look likely. Uh, so they'll probably remain for the foreseeable future. And China, you're right, has also stepped up its commitments to MINUSMA. It's sending around 4, 400 sorry, Chinese soldiers, um, and that's mirrored its increased pledges to UN peacekeeping more widely in Africa from South Sudan, and it has a military base in Djibouti. So Beijing is, at the same time, investing much more in Mali's infrastructure, um, especially in, there's, there's a, a railway line, a colonial railway line it's building between Mali and, and Senegal. Um, Turkey is also another actor that's doing a lot more to increase its presence. Um, it's spending a lot more through the Turkish cooperation and coordination agency. It's sort of denounced Operation Bakan as neo-colonial. It signed a security agreement with Niger in 2020, which is, is to increase uh, bilateral cooperation to sort of counter any spillover of the Libyan conflict, which Turkey is very heavily involved in. So you can see that there is a lot more more interest in the Sahel. Um, from from other actors. But ultimately, I mean, none of their commitments match the scale of of Europe's commitment um, or, you know, Europe's interest in the region and the US in particular is not going to make the region a priority, nor do I see China doing this in the future. It's very much on on Europe's doorstep. And and I think Washington definitely sees that the conflict is as Europe's problem.
0: Hmm. I, I mean, I'd like to ask Abdul Salam, from the perspective of the international financial institutions, um, is this uh, involvement from many different um, international actors uh, well coordinated, or, or is it quite competitive? And is that a, a bad thing? Uh, you know, is this another another sort of scramble for Africa between Europeans, Americans, Russians, Turks, and Chinese?
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Jan, for, for the question. Uh, before I answer, just to to provide additional information on the governance. You know, uh, the the governance and the management of fund on the military is taken very seriously by by the the countries. And um, just to highlight that um, last week, uh, the the new president of Niger uh, sworn in, it was on April the 2nd. And um, he uh, actually made strong statement on two issues. One is uh, governance and accountability. This came out very clear and strongly in his statement. And the second is education, Mm -hmm. how to educate people and to especially girl education to address also some of the drivers of uh, the demographic trend I've been talking about uh, earlier. So to come to your question, uh, international institutions, partnership, et cetera, definitely uh, having uh, such attention uh, in the region well, I will say it's, uh, it's an important one. But uh, definitely uh, the issue here is uh, how the countries, the institutions at the national level are able to coordinate or absorb that support. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been talking earlier about uh, the... The weakness or the issue on state capacities or capabilities, this applies both on the civilian side. I will say discussion with international institu- institution partners, etc., but also on the military side. So, uh, what uh, having a framework like a Sahel Alliance, I think, is a, is a, is one of the up- is a good approach to help. R- provide more rational and, and division of labor in the, in the support that is that the international community is providing. but I believe that we need to go a, step, uh, a bit further because definitely um, uh, there is still issue on on, uh, on countries' capacities and to which extent the countries have uh, the possibility to to shift or to say okay this is our priority. Because what we have been seeing in some, in some cases is that uh, the agenda is set uh, on behalf of, with some of the countries or, or I would say countries not having enough opportunity to say, maybe this is a direction we want to go. So we always have this kind of, uh, I would say, dialectic contention with, uh, with very, some of the partners in regarding uh, the proposals, the approach they have in terms of cooperation for the region and the dialogue that Sahel countries would like to have regarding the partnership with uh, with other countries. So, I think here we have some 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 mismatch we we need to, to work on. I think both parties, Sahel countries and donor uh, sides, are aware of that. So there there is a work to be done to to ensure. Better or smooth uh, coordination on that. You know, if you take the, some of the ministries in the in, in the Sahel countries, the ministries that are in charge of dialogue with uh, with partners, uh, the number of people are very low. I'm talking about just the number of people. I cannot even dare telling you how many people are talking. Or, with the World Bank from from my from my countryside, I mean it's very few people, and uh, not forgetting also you have capacity issue in order to also conduct a full-fledged negotiation with various degrees of uh, details on each sector, subsector, etc. So if you have uh, that large number of uh, partners coming to the country, but having very few people who are uh, supporting that the country dialogue of course you will have another an additional burden so i'm not saying that the cooperation is not good of course not but what i'm saying here is definitely uh, uh, capacity on the countryside remain also important it might be repetitive what i'm saying here but i think it's uh it's one of the key issues uh regarding the, the world bank what we have been doing currently with uh uh, with the countries, uh, we have been putting in place um, an initiative called uh, Prevention and Resilience Allocation that uh, aim to support not only Sahel countries, but countries that are facing fragility uh, issues, that's how we call it uh, uh, at the back in order to help them design actually uh, a strategy to uh, mitigate risk and also address all the issue related to escalation of violence. So we did that already uh, in December with uh, with Burkina Faso. Uh, mm-hmm. We did that uh, in March with uh, with Niger. So there is an ongoing uh, work that is being done currently with uh, with Mali, with uh, with Chad. Um, that I believe that we will come to, uh, to to present those uh, uh, initiative at the board of the World Bank uh, before, hopefully, uh, before June or, or sometime during the summer. So, those are the kind of initiatives we we are we are working around. But definitely, at the end of the day, I think what is important is uh, to make sure that uh, the groups, the people who are feeling uh, disenfranchised, actually find a, a way to ensure that there is an accountability in uh, in the system as far as the accountability and access or equal access to services obviously is not uh, is not met uh, all the issues we've been talking about here will uh, will remain
0: okay no that's that's a really helpful piece of advice i think perhaps i can ask a final question to to catherine um i mean it was hard to avoid the the um, parallels between uh, the the long international intervention in Afghanistan and some of what we're seeing in the Sahel, albeit on a, a smaller scale. But what steps should the EU and key states like France, in particular, take? to make sure that the Sahel doesn't become Europe's forever war. So, you know, is there anything that Europe should be doing and European countries should be doing to to, um, answer the points that Abdul Salam has just made about capacity, about coordination, about a sense of ownership in the countries? Um, You know, what does Europe need to do to make its um, involvement contribute to a success rather than a failure.
2: Yeah, Uh, the parallel with Afghanistan has been very frequently made by journalists and commentators. And there's a lot of anxiety about how, you know, Mali could become a second Afghanistan I think the dynamics of the conflicts on the ground are very different, their duration are different, the causes are different, the armed groups have different aims, but I think where maybe comparisons can perhaps be drawn in terms is in terms of how France is responding, compared with how the US responded in Afghanistan. Both the US engagement in Afghanistan and the French engagement in Mali started out as a targeted mission with, you know, the specific aim of pushing back a certain group. But both saw their missions expand to much more long term and ambitious goals of, you know, stabilising an entire country. And both are now ultimately supporting administrations, which for some populations are seen as, you know, corrupt or ineffectual. Um, so this is this is clearly a, a problem that's shared and all of this has certainly fed into the belief that Europe's in a forever war, you know, especially in France, there's a growing concern about the length of time that they've been engaged, the price of this engagement, you know, Opération Barkhane cost nearly a billion euros in, in 2019. So yeah, in terms of how to prevent those, to prevent similar mis- mistakes from being made um, and to stop the Sahel from becoming a forever war, I think there needs to be a, a, a change in approach. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, shifting away from this sort of technical approach and tackling the symptoms of instability, which Europe fixates on like migration, like terrorist attacks, and they need to follow through on their rhetoric about tackling the causes of the violence. So this means focusing on rule of law, good governance, the provision of public services, Um, But also transparency in the Sahel's governments to make sure that citizens are properly served. And really, as Abdul Salam was saying, you know, fear and the distrust they feel towards their governments about the lack of accountability needs to be addressed. And only then will peace agreements between the ethnic groups and, and dialogues have a real chance of succeeding in the long term. So this means firstly sending a very clear message to armed forces in the region Um, this is something I mentioned in my paper that illegal killings and human rights abuses need to stop and really officers have to be held accountable um, for for when these killings happen. Um, This might include sanctions if these abuses keep happening or also reviewing the training that the EU gives to the Malian army on human rights for instance. Um, Similarly, Europe should uh, look at the aid and security assistance it's giving and make sure that there's good uh, account keeping, good financial transparency and good public audits to sort of try and stop these corruption scandals from continuing to happen and avoid the idea that Europe's complicit in them uh, or, you know, the international community are funding administrations which are unaccountable and, and corrupt. But more widely, I think the EU has a particular role to play in investing time and resources in helping civil society groups and really like listening to their demands and giving them leverage to to press their governments for change. This is something that the EU does very well for for instance in eastern partnership countries such as Ukraine and Moldova and it should consider a similar approach in the Sahel because ultimately when people believe there is a government that will listen to them and act on their concerns and protect them and work in their interests there's much less of an appeal to turning to jihadist groups or for example other self-defense militias in the longer term.
0: Well, that's a really good good note to to end on. Um, I I think um, you're right that it would be good to see the EU um, talking to those sort of wider circles in society and civil society organisations and so on. Um, I, I'd like to thank both of you, uh, Abdul Salam Bello, Catherine Pye. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great discussion, uh, and I do encourage listeners to read. Catherine's paper on this subject. Um, It's an extremely good one and an easy read. uh, And um, look forward to uh, catching up with you and following this issue in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER
2: underscore EU.